This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk and financial solutions. When there's blood in the streets, uh, lift up, check under the carpet. Many try, but few become master of the mark market. Well, Hamish, call it. Thanks very much for coming on Masters of the Market. Uh, I heard you speak at Sons and it was absolutely brilliant and uh, had a huge desire to sit down and have a chat with you. So, really appreciate you, uh, you making the time. Thanks, mate. I really appreciate the opportunity and thanks for the kind words. Now, I thought we'd start with uh, your time at Caledonia Investments. Yep. Mark Nelson, Will Vickers, Mike Massara, sort of investment royalty in Australia. Yep. How long were you there for? What age did you start? And what were some of your key learnings from, uh, from your time there? Uh, well, the history with Caledonia kind of predates me joining the Caledonia team. Joining Caledonia was always a dream of mine as a young investor. Uh, I grew up next door to Mark Nelson, who was, I'd say, one of my investment mentors and, and a huge inspiration to me personally. And I was lucky enough to get the opportunity to join them, oh, I've forgotten what the year is now, maybe in 2003, 2004. Uh, and so much of what TDM is now was um, inspired by certainly the early days of, of Caledonia and how, how they, they built their business. Um, so I spent a few years there, got an enormous amount of value from that experience and in particular on the international um, side of what we do. So investing uh, in mainly US listed businesses uh, and before that I was very much uh, focused on Australian listed businesses and being involved in Australian companies and that gave me the international exposure which was enormously valuable. And so then 2005 started TDM with Tom Cowan and Ben Giz. Yep. Um, started with a million bucks and uh, I guess what were the values and what sort of fund were you hoping that you were going to be able to build? Our objective from the start was to build a, an investment firm that invested, according to us, the right way yep. and build that business from first principles. We never wanted to be put into a box. We never wanted to be thought of as a VC fund or a private equity fund or an institutional publicly, you know, public company fund. We just thought of ourselves as business owners and as long-term business owners, and we wanted to be a source of long-term capital for great management teams, great companies that are trying to do great things. So that was the mindset from the start. The problem with that model is that it's very hard to get institutional money. Uh, and there's a lot of baggage that goes with institutional money. So whilst the benefit is you can, if you've got a good relationship with, um, uh, with super funds and you've got a track record as a fund manager, you can get big licks of capital, say 50 or $100 million, yeah. and that can pay the bills and that can give you financial security, but there's a whole bunch of baggage that goes along with that. Baggage around the money being withdrawn when performance is slow for a quarter or that, that yeah, sort of stuff? Yeah, exactly. Or? So marking yourself to market on a short-term basis, whether it's monthly, daily, quarterly, yeah. uh, also being put in a box. So uh, you know, institutional money tends to want to give money to you know, private equity or they want to give money to a VC or they want to give money to instos. That didn't fit with what we wanted to create. And so we wanted the people to back us that A, 
trusted us as people and believed that um, we could be good investors. And number two, shared our long-term business owner mentality. And so that's what we went out and tried to find. So you targeted family officers, and then were there family officers that came in and you just thought your values aren't going to align with us? And even though it's not an institutional institutional money, it's still not a great fit for TDM? Yeah, well, I mean, we even did a step before that, which is we have never targeted family officers. It was always relationships with individuals. Yeah, okay. So people that we'd worked for, people that we'd known for, known, uh, for a long period of time, and people that were just willing to back us as people. And they knew that since we were teenagers, we were passionate about being investors. Uh, and this was something that we eat, live and breathe every day and that we care about every single dollar. Uh, and so the kind of clients that we uh, were able to get on board early, which are basically the same 20 clients that we have today, uh, are all people that share that mentality that when you're investing in business, it doesn't matter if it's public or private or overseas or in Australia, you are buying an ownership uh, position in that company and company value is only built over the long term. And so talk to us about the structure of the actual fund, the fact that the money's evergreen. Yep. How does that work if circumstances change or the families decide they do want to cash out? So families can uh, withdraw money whenever they want. There's no lock-up whatsoever, uh, but the idea is if you join as a client, then you are backing us as people and as investors and it's for, a, for the long term. So our clients allocate us capital uh, and that is with this kind of intergenerational mindset. So they're not deploying capital for five years or even 10 years, they're thinking, okay, we trust these people uh, and we trust them for many, many years to come. So in theory, any client, if they're unhappy with our performance, if they're unhappy with our behaviour, can pull money out at any point in time. Uh, but essentially, we've never had any withdrawals. Not uh, so except for paying fees, paying tax bills, like those kind yeah. of things. Uh, but no, no client has ever said, we're unhappy with your behaviour or your performance, see you yeah. later. Wow. And now up to over a billion bucks assets under management. Yep. And are you closed in effect? We've been closed for a, quite a long time. So we do keep our minds somewhat open to new clients on the basis uh, that they will be able to add value to the group. Uh, and so that's always been the mind. Since we were kind of five clients, adding clients has always been on that basis because what we're trying to optimise for is delivering outstanding returns for as long as possible. And we started off with a million dollars and that was purposeful in the early days because we wanted to kind of, we wanted to grow into the capability. We wanted to prove to clients that we could do Aussie listed. Then we wanted to prove to clients that we could do Aussie private and we could do you know, international listed and you know, now we can do international private. And so there are all these things that we feel like we've had to earn our stripes on and starting off small and kind of being the, the turtle rather than the hare has been our approach and the mentality. So you mentioned the instos and super funds, you guys not really fitting with them because they like to put uh, investments in a box, whether it's private equity or listed equities or whatever. Uh, you guys have a real blend of strategy like you touched on where uh, you have to be private or public or international. Um, 
I guess, what was the, the mindset around that? And why do you think so many investors and, and funds in Australia do lock themselves up with rules that in, in effect inhibit their ability to invest in some attractive opportunities? Uh, I mean, we believe it goes all the way back to the education system. And so fundamentally, in high school business studies, which I believe should be a mandatory, uh, a mandatory subject for all high, high school students to go back to first principles of finance and what is a bank and all of those basic personal finance um, uh, fundamental skills that you need to have to live life. And then how finance is predominantly taught in the university system is largely still uh, wrapped around things like, you know, CAPM and efficient markets and all these kind of things, which in our belief massively overcomplicates uh, investing. And what are you doing when you're investing? And that is very simply, you are investing money into a business which um, gives you ownership of that business and you've got a whole bunch of people in that business that are trying to grow value, very, very simply. And so when you go back to those very basic first principles, why does it matter whether you're publicly listed or private, for example? It doesn't. What level of restrictions will you put on yourself? Like, would you allow yourself to buy government bonds or would you allow yourself to buy gold? Where does the, where does the line eventually get drawn? I mean, I'm yeah. assuming you don't have a Bitcoin <laughs> asset there hidden somewhere in the, uh, in the closet. So, I mean, whilst theoretically we have a totally open mandate, we could do almost anything we wanted, yeah. we have been incredibly focused uh, in terms of who we are as investors and who we are as an investment firm. And that really hasn't changed. I mean, we've evolved for, you know, over the 30 years that we've been investing personally and then professionally. And so whilst we've evolved, the core focus of what our investment strategy is and what the businesses are that we want to invest in has not really changed that much. Uh, so whilst it's very, very open, we're still very, very focused yep. on what that is. And so does the fact that you guys are prepared to roll the sleeves up and join board seats here on the board of Tyro and Somnomed, yep. um, you feel like that gives you a, a margin of safety in a sense because you can actually add some value to the investment once you've invested in it? So um, that's the idea. Uh, so we have worked very hard uh, over a long period of time to not only invest in great companies, but uh, we never wanted to be thought of as just a source of capital, yeah. just a check. We are, we're incredibly passionate people. We love what we do. We love turning up to work every day and we are passionate about the businesses we invest in. So our core mission is to invest in and help businesses we're proud of. So. It's not just investing businesses we're proud of, the helping part is really, really important to us. And on one end of the spectrum, uh, we are more passive investors where we've got the right management team, we've got the right board, and we try to help from time to time, but it's not as intensive as um, you know, with some of our typically smaller private companies where we've got one or two board members and we're really rolling the sleeves up to um, you know, make it the great company that everyone thinks it can be. You know, Buffett and you guys have a view that when we invest in a business, we're buying the business and all that comes to that. And other people feel like, well, I'm a minority shareholder, I'm just buying a bit of paper. When it goes to up too much, I'll sell it. When it goes too low, I might buy some more. Do you feel that being a, a genuine capital partner gives you more meaning out of the, the whole investing experience than it does if you are just viewing it as a, a bit of paper? 
I mean, absolutely. And that had to be fundamental from the start to creating TDM. We are an incredibly mission-driven, culture-first business ourselves, and that's what we're looking to invest in. Uh, when I, I mean, whilst I always, so for me personally, I always wanted to be an investor when I was a teenager. I fell in love with it. And I got into the workforce and I got into the finance industry and I spent some years, um, the first few years of my career doing that. And I didn't find that purpose mm. and that um, sense of what am I really contributing to the community and how's that going to work? And so, and that was a kind of, a hollow piece within me that I then need to go and try to find. And I actually started to ask myself the question, is this the right industry for me? And I've always been passionate about education and I started to explore and pursue that passion. So I trained up to be a teacher, teacher and a youth worker and I did that for a, for a couple of years, um, but which was a very, very important learning for me, but I came back to investing because um, it, that meaning piece and that purpose mm. piece crystallised for me and that's when creating TDM really became um, you know, what I was passionate about. Because that looks like the common lifestyle. You look at a Ray Dalio now, you know, started investing, made a bucket load of money, then you're writing books and doing sort of media to try and not make up for the meaning that you perhaps didn't find during that investing cycle. But that sort of seems to be the common thread where it feels like here you've chosen to have that meaning exist in day-to-day -day life instead of making a bucket load of cash and trying to find it at the end. I think, I mean, that, that is so fundamental to who we are and for everyone in the team. I wasn't willing to spend one day, one year, decades of my life and then at the end of all that, you know, if I've been successful, then I can kind of think about the community around, yeah. um, around me. TDM was set up because we fundamentally believe that the role of investment firms in the community is absolutely critical and we wanted to create an investment firm that uh, fulfilled um, the role we have for clients, which is generating outstanding returns, supporting the families of the people that are part of this business, but also having a positive impact on the community. We really, really believed and we really, really thought we could deliver on those things working in parallel and actually bringing each other up. And so that's what, we're 15 years in, but we really feel like we're starting to prove that out. How do you split your time between Hamish Call at the stock picker or you know, business analyst and, and managing a team and, and driving standards internally? Well, where do your sort of priorities lie with those two objectives? The, that's the hardest, probably the hardest part of how my role has evolved. And as the team has grown, we've got 20 people in the business, but we are a very, very close team. And everyone here is really, really passionate about not only what we're trying to do with TDM, but um, their own sense of purpose and their own progression and mastery and, and kind of wanting, wanting to be world-class. And we want a team 20 people who are all world-class at what they do in the business. And so a huge part of my role has become uh, coaching and investing in the team and making sure this team can not only optimise the individual outcomes within the team as players, as, as team members, but also we're optimising uh, how all those fit together uh, as a team in and of itself and that we can continue to scale from a million bucks to a billion and 10 billion down the track. And what comes more naturally out of those two roles for you? I think the team builder or the stock picker? 
I'd say the team builder. I'd love to, the allocation of time piece is the hard one. Yeah. Um, I love, I just love being a part of a team. In terms of what really presses my buttons, I mean, I love investing and that will always be a big part, I hope, of how I spend my day-to-day -day life. Uh, but in terms of what really presses my buttons, it's it's being part of the team and you know playing a role, hopefully, to kind of make the team better. So I've, I've read, or we've spoken about um, TDM not wanting to be put in a, a box. Yep. One thing that does appear to be a non-negotiable from the outside is the, the quality of the culture of the businesses that you guys invest in. Uh, what are some of the things when you're going through your DD process, which sounds like it's often a really elongated process, what are some of the things you're keeping an eye out for in that process to work out if the company's culture is what they say it is? It's the hardest part of what we do in terms of the DD process. And so to go back a step, the way we look at businesses is, I think, pretty simple. We've got four investment pillars. The first one is people and culture. That is number one, that is ultimately what we care about the most and what we rest our investment on. Number two is competitive advantage. Number three is the growth opportunity for the business. And number four is the valuation piece. The valuation piece is usually the easiest piece to, to solve if we've got a view on the first three components. Is that most important to least important in your eyes or they're all equally weighted? They're, I mean, they're so intertwined. Yeah. Uh, in, if I had to say what was the most important and really what do we hang our hat on, it's the people and culture piece. Yeah. And it's not, I guess we don't necessarily think about it as the most important to least important because price is, um, is ultimately critical for um, driving returns over time. But in terms of the mistakes we've made uh, over the years, that always comes down to the first component, which yeah. people and culture. It's usually pretty easiest for us to work out, does this business have a reasonable competitive advantage that we think can grow over time? Is there a big growth opportunity to go after and are we paying a fairish price for the business? Uh, there's obviously a fair bit of work to do around those three components. The hardest one, but the most important one, is the people and culture piece. So how do we diagnose that? I'd say we're still getting better about the how to do that and we still make mistakes. Uh, but the most important thing is, number one, spending time with the people. Um, we spend a lot of time in the DD process, not with you know financial accountants and legal DD and all these other kind of tick the box things. A lot of our DD is commercial DD and that's just getting to know the people in the business that ultimately we're backing. And the most important person is usually the founder, CEO. That's 90% of that people and culture problem. If you can solve that 90% as the key leader, then that's where the key area of focus is. And so you're spending this extensive amount of time with often the founder or, or the CEO, you know, often judging quite qualitative things around, yeah. around culture and what they're doing. Is there a process whereby the person comes back and then sort of a sexist joke, you know, one cross or this or that, or like what sort of detail is put around those meetings post to try and form a picture of, of what the culture looks yeah. like? It's very detailed. Is it? And so, and so things like the sexist comment would be, that'd probably be a deal breaker. Yeah. Uh, and, or not probably, that would be a deal breaker, but they're the kind of, that's the tapestry of data points we're trying to put together. Yeah. But it has to be in a structured form. So uh, you have to know what you're looking for in a CEO. So there are kind of four key components that I think about when we're looking for a CEO, and I'm trying to mark the CEO against those four components. It's almost like a job interview 
in a sense, really? doing your, your background sure. on, on someone you're going to hire, I guess. I've heard you speak about grit and toughness of these founders and, and CEOs has been something that you find um, of most importance when you're looking at them. Can you give us an example of a, a founder that you've invested in and, and some of the, the toughness they showed, which has really impressed you? There's a long list there. I mean, most founders, if they get to the point of scaling, have usually shown an immense amount of grit, um, that passion and perseverance, uh, which is one of those core characteristics. So if you take someone like Chris Ellison, who is the CEO of a now $3 billion listed company called Mineral Resources, he started that business many decades ago in what has to be one of the toughest industries in the world. It is literally the only mining services business or even mining company that we've ever, or A, we've ever invested in, mm. and B, no other um, business we've ever come across in that sector has even come close to meeting our criteria. But Mins is the exception, and that is because of, largely because of Chris and who he is as a person. He started that business, which is you know, quite a capital intensive business, on the back of a credit card and has now built it to a $3 billion business, which has compounded capital since listing 15 years ago at 25% per annum in terms of total shareholder return, compounded EPS at 20% plus per annum. Uh, we've been on that journey with him and um, that'd, be, that'd be one of the best examples. But I could almost go through the whole portfolio with those. And so did he approach you? It seems like a lot of the investments come to you. Um, were you scouring sort of uh, was, iron ore mining services <laughs> companies you know, in the ASX? And it, was a, uh, it was a funny little Perth-based mining services company that listed in 2006. Yeah. And so at that point in time, you know, it was an Aussie small cap and um, they built this incredibly resilient and innovative mining service business that was servicing the majors, building crushing plants for BHP and Rio, and, um, and they were doing an incredibly great job. And so from that core uh, annuity, earning, annuity earning stream that they were driving, they were able to reinvest back in innovation and go from the you know, 100 million mark up to 3 billion or whatever it is today. But so even that not being in your wheelhouse, you guys were still looking at that level of diversity in terms of different businesses for that to still come across your desk. Yeah, we were. I mean, most of what we do is software and online. Yeah. So software and online for the last 15 years has probably been 70, 75% of what we've invested in. Consumer and healthcare are the, the other kind of major industries that we've spent a lot of time investing in. Uh, and there's some crossover between the three, but they're the three. Every now and then, and it's very, very seldom, you come across a mineral resource, uh, resources where whilst they're the industries where we've built a circle, of, we feel like we've built a circle of competence, at the end of the day, we are looking for businesses that um, have um, incredible innovation, and the ability to continue to continually deliver incredible innovation uh, that creates competitive advantage and they're implementing a strategy which is driving long-term growth. At the very, very basic level, that is what we're looking for in a business. And in terms of global trends looking at sort of 20 years, what are some of those that you think are going to have a lasting impact on the investment world and the world at large? 
I think there's a lot of different directions I could go with that. It'd be a very long answer, but I think the overriding trend that we, or at least we really care about, is mission-driven, culture-first businesses. So don't even care about what's happening in different industries. What I know for sure is over the long term, if you're thinking 10 and 20 years, the biggest shift in, in my view is the mission critical importance of being mission first and people and culture first. They are the companies, regardless of industry, that are gonna be successful. And why is that? Because uh, we live in a world now where competitive advantages we used to rely on even 10 years ago, but certainly 20, 30 years ago, you just can't rely on them to the same duration uh, that you could back in the day. Industries move too fast, technology is moving too fast, disruption happens faster and faster no matter how entrenched you are as an incumbent in an industry. What matters is the mission that you're building an organisation around and the people and culture uh, that is delivering that. That is the enduring thing that we care about. Uh, and so, and, and what we're seeing is the companies that are um, uh, having the most success uh, in the last, certainly in the last five or five to ten years, but increasingly are those companies that are mission mission driven and culture first. I had another investor say the exact same thing recently, and I posed the question to him: Do you think that's linked at all to religion and the fact that it doesn't play as big a part in our society as it used to, and people have an, a, a desire to want to belong to something and to to want to feel a part of something? And in a way, some of these mission-led businesses are fulfilling a role that religion in countries like Australia used to fill generations ago. Yeah, I'm a big believer in that theory. It, uh, uh, the sense of purpose and belonging is so fundamental to human, uh, human nature, and we spend so much of our lives working. And so for those two things to coincide, I don't think is... Uh, I think that is a logical progression and the need for people to really derive belonging and purpose for their work is more important than ever. So one of our invest investments, um, which is in right in the epicentre of this, if you call it thematic, is a business called Coltram. Amazing um, business based in Melbourne, global leader in helping businesses uh, with that people and culture um, challenge that all businesses have, no matter how big or small you have, uh, small you are. It's a brilliant story, Culture Am. It might be good to just dive into it, particularly for people that haven't heard of it. Maybe a bit of background on what they do. And I guess they're a, a business that's almost started a whole new category. Um, maybe a little bit about a what they do, but what your mindset is when you're investing in something which essentially hadn't really been done before. It is a category creator. So it's a category leader in, in a category that is nascent but has huge, huge potential and we're seeing that with the success of the business. Uh, so the, the mission of Coltram, and I hope I do this justice, is to, to amplify the potential of, um, of over 100 million people in their work lives over time. Uh, and uh, how they're trying to go about that is understanding um, culture within organisations uh, and trying to optimise uh, the contribution of people within that culture. 
And so every culture is different in an organization. There's no, they're not, not trying to solve, this is the kind of culture you need to have. It is, um, how do we get the most out of the people in the organization? How do we optimize the individual and the organization as a whole? And they provide software, um, but not only software, uh, because it's such a human endeavor to do what they're trying to do. Um, the software is facilitating cultural improvement with a whole bunch of people scientists, data scientists, coaches that essentially try to help their customers get the most out of their people uh, and the culture of the business. And so when you came across that initially and you thought, wow, that's, that's a cool idea, it's never been done before, uh, is it hard for you to get comfortable with, with a business that's, you know, so many of these pioneer businesses have a history of failing and then the next person comes along, innovates a little bit better and, and it's the second iteration that really makes a success. How was it viewing that and was, was it largely to do with the comfort you had around the founders running that business? It was really easy to get comfort with that business. Uh, even though it is, it is kind of on the earlier stage of what we do and, and you're right, many companies that are at its stage fail, vast, vast majority, uh, or don't get to scale. With this one, we clearly we believe in the opportunity they're going after. We believe they have built quite significant competitive advantage, especially for a business um, of its size. But it was really that people and culture piece. And Didier, the founder, in, um, and Rod Doug, his co-founders, are incredible people and people that we believe um, will um, give this business the best opportunity to be the global success story that we think it's going to be over the next 10, 15 years. Uh, so that was number one. Uh, and number two, part of their mission is what they can do for their customers. But just as importantly, it's the company that they are trying to create for themselves. They're trying to be the exemplar for the next generation of companies globally in terms of people and culture and what that means and how powerful that is. And did you use that here before you invested in it? We didn't. So we use it at the time uh, when we were doing the due diligence process, uh, we became a user. Yeah. I had been exposed to it at companies where I was on the board. So uh, we had seen it in action uh, and seen our companies, um, our portfolio companies use it with great success. Uh, so whilst TDM had only recently become a customer, we'd been a customer elsewhere. Yeah, there's something simple as just using the product. If you're going to invest in it, yeah. <laughs> if possible, is you know, yeah. a pretty good starting point to, to give for you sure. a feel for, for what it's like. We mentioned grit of, yep. of founders. Uh, I think that grid and, and bouncing back after a setback is something that gets spoken about a lot. I don't know if dealing with success gets spoken about a lot and the potential pitfalls that that brings. Um, what sort of lens can you share on that? You guys have gone from you know, a million under management to, to over a bill. Um, have you put any thought into how you are and how you're going to deal with the success in the future and perhaps how some of the companies you're invested in tackle that issue as well? For sure. And we've been focused on this issue um forever and it always comes it's always a cultural issue and, and what's above culture it's values and beliefs the values of tdm has always been we care about every single dollar and we always said at the start that we're never going to be desensitized to that uh, and that was a huge huge reason why clients backed us from the start because they knew that we cared about every single one of their dollars 
uh, and that was never going away. So the criticism of us is usually we care about every single dollar too much. Like we sweat, um, we, spe we sweat every single dollar we spend in the business, we sweat every single dollar that we deploy for clients. Uh, but that is such a part of our DNA that I don't think it's ever or should ever go away. We like to invest in businesses with bulletproof balance sheets. And so often they can get accused of lazy balance sheets where there's no debt and a lot of cash on the balance sheet. We think that is a critical part of competitive advantage because it allows you to be nimble. Um, but what we have seen with some businesses is when you've got a lot of cash on the balance sheet or you've done a huge raising at a big valuation. And in particular, this was a big issue for us in the US with the US software companies we were investing in, that there becomes a complacency of deploying that capital. And there becomes a, uh, a lack of care for every single dollar uh, that you're deploying. So that was always something that we've cared a lot about. And that's where I feel like with the US listed, listed businesses, We've actually had more of an impact than we ever could have expected on the culture of those businesses in terms of how they manage their capital. It sounds like time is is a big um, focus here, and time you know time horizons potential advantage of a private investor over a particularly an institutional investor, where they've got quarterly or monthly um, performance reports they've got to do. On your website, you speak about um, there's no set time to sale when you invest in a business, and you can just feel the founders sort of breathe a sigh of relief yeah. when they hear that. Uh, and even that idea around having balance sheets with enough cash on them so that people can afford to make long-term long decisions without running out of cash. Yep. Do you feel that time horizon is a big part of how you invest in and almost a competitive advantage you've built over, over other funds? Uh, it's, it's the most important competitive advantage outside of people and culture for us. And that goes back to the, just this relationship we have with clients. So our clients afford us the ability to take a long-term view. So you know, it goes back to the institutional thing. If we had institutional money, we would be sweating short-term performance because you never know when they're gonna come and pull $100 million out. We have uh, clients that are genuine partners. We care about them deeply. Uh, they're as much family and friends as they are clients uh, and they trust us and we trust them and they've gone through the ups and downs. So whilst we've We've compounded 25% over kind of any kind of three, five, seven, 10, 15 year time frame. There's been ups and downs. It hasn't been a straight line. And uh, through the GFC, this is where it really proved it out for us. Because at that point in time, the world was imploding. Share prices were going down five, 10% every day. The world, like, it looked like markets were going to zero. in New York, I remember it yeah, well. It was exactly. <laughs> and it was, it was a tough time. We didn't have one withdrawal over that period of time. We had clients giving us more money because they believed in us and they believed in the opportunity that the GFC was uh, presenting. It wasn't to say that we weren't scared out of our pants deploying that capital because it was still um, a really tough thing to do. Uh, and that's where you really need that long-term mindset. But um, without our clients, uh, it would have been impossible. And how do you value your private businesses? What's your sort of structure there? We value them at a cost until they're on a public market, publicly traded. So we, oh, don't, wow. we don't do the mark to market thing. Really? So what, the, the 20 plus percent returns is with them? With that drag. So we're oh. on average, we've had a, 20, uh, a 15 to 20% cash drag 
And then on top of that, we've got the private company just holding that across. Drag. Now that catches up. So Tyro, for example, invested yeah. in 2015 at a dollar. That listed December last year. And so we're able to mark that to market. Now it's trading. Yeah. Um, but even if they do a funding round before it's public, you still stay on their cost base. Yeah, we do. Oh, wow. Which is very different to how most well, PE firms, funds generally value their businesses. We never spent, I think we kind of broadly understand how others do it, but we never spent much time thinking about how others do it. We always started off and go, well, what's, what's a fee structure that makes sense to us, which is very different to how others, whether it's listed or private, our fee structure is totally different. Yeah. Or, um, we think it's quite different. And you know, how we mark to market is also different. It was always just going back to first principles, creating the alignment with clients what is fair, what is good alignment, how can we prove to clients that we care about every single dollar, that all we, all we care about is optimising returns. We want to compound at 25 or 20% plus for as long as possible. Give about the headlines, Hamish. You're missing out on some good performance headlines. You could be the, <laughs> could be the Druckenmiller of Australia, you know? Um, relationships, which you've touched on, it feels that's probably... Uh, maybe underestimated by a lot of people the importance of relationships in investing. A lot of fund managers are viewed as being, um, you know, as having a real quantitative sort of a mind. Yeah. How do you go about cultivating those relationships and um, just why are they so important? Well, so why are they so important? So we've got a kind of really simple depiction of what the TDM flywheel looks like. It starts with uh, building a team and, and an ecosystem of high integrity, highly capable, passionate people. That's where, that's where we started. If you do that, then you can build trusted relationships. And that's the second component of the flywheel. Uh, if you're building trusted relationships, then um, you have this ability to develop these client relationships or relationships with private companies that are looking for a partner. So that allows us to invest in great companies. If you invest in great companies, you're gonna generate great returns. If you generate great returns, you're gonna be able to reinvest back into a great team of people. So that's how the flywheel works. But at the center of that is trust um, and um, those incredibly strong relationships. There's no substitute to just investing the time uh, and building that trust. And we think about this, um, this idea that the, um, Toby Lutke, the founder of Shopify, talks about a trust battery. And so we think about building a trust battery with all of our relationships over time, uh, and that um, develops over many, many years. So our ideal scenario for it with a private company, for example, is that we're building the relationship with that private um, company founder over many years. So by the time that founder wants capital or by the time it comes into our sweet spot, we've done our DD. We can press the button and we're ready to support them with capital. And so I can see how the relationship works really nicely on the way in. You're bringing capital, which the, the business desperately needs. Yep. How does it work on the way out when you say, right, you know, we're targeting 20% growth a year in businesses. Now you're at the next phase. It's time for us to move on. How do you manage that 
you know, I'm assuming you're not just selling a few mineral resources on market. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, look, Chris, just to, yeah. uh, how do you manage that process so it's smooth on the way out as well? Well, I mean, MINS is an extraordinary one because we've been there for 15 years and we think it can continue to yeah. compound at a high rate for many years to come. But I'm assuming baby that's not how you would do it if it was time to sell. Exactly. So baby bunting is a good example. Yeah. Where we were, um, we initially invested in that business many, many years ago, Melbourne-based family company, five or six stores, uh, and you know, $40 million of revenue. Now it's $400 million of revenue, still a wonderful business, and it's still um, growing very, very, um, very, very strongly. Uh, we, that was an incredibly uh, successful investment for us and an incredible relationship that we still hold very, very dear, and we're still very, very close to um, the people in that business. But we're very clear from the outset uh, that we want to try to compound capital in the businesses we're invested in at 30%. Uh, and sometimes we get things wrong, so ultimately the return, you know, there's some cash drag in there and, you know, um, you know ultimately we want to produce, I mean, the internal target for us is to produce 25% returns for our clients. Um, but we're really striving to invest in businesses that are growing at uh, growing shareholder value at 30% per annum. We're really, really, or more, we're really, really clear on that at the start of the relationship. Because there is a point in time where a business cannot grow at that rate, and that's okay. And it can still be a wonderful business, but at that point in time, uh, and uh, you know, that business can still compound capital at 15% or 10% or you know or even 20% and it doesn't meet our threshold but it meets the threshold of many many other investors and we think baby bunting fits in that category it is still a wonderful business it is um, the management team are doing an incredibly good job we think shareholder um, uh, value will continue to compound at a very very attractive rate uh, but it now just falls outside um, our sweet spot. And so do you find an investment bank then to do a book build or when you do sell and the company's listed, do you try and find the buyers depending on you know, knowledge of who may be a, a buyer for that sort of a, an asset or how does that yeah, work? For, for an asset of that size, um, we'd work with an investment bank to yeah. assist in that. We want, at the end of the day, we want um, an orderly uh, process where, and usually at that point in time, there are significant natural buyers for for that stake. And so well. you're working with the company themselves as to who wants to get on the registry and, and doing it off market Exactly, so and Baby Bunny is a great example where I think that transition off the board and as a major shareholder happened very, very well. They've got a very good uh, set of shareholders that I think will continue to do very well. Well, it's been brilliant. I just want to finish with three questions, if that's okay. What was your first ever investment? I think it might have been in Stockland. Stockland? A bit blue chip for a It was very teenager. blue chip. <laughs> it was a property business, which yep. is obviously very unlike what I do now. Uh, but my old man was involved in that business uh, and um, it was an okay investment. I think I transitioned away from that one pretty quickly, but I think factually that was my very first gotcha. listed company investment. I remember my old man, and why I had to cast my mind back is my old man had to kind of, there was no online trading back in those days. It was, must have been the early 90s, 
something around that time. And so had to make a trip into the city with my old man, sat down with his stockbroker who had a telephone. <laughs> he called up the stock exchange. He had the screen in front of him. I think uh, it was back in the days of the old chalkies writing, uh, writing everything up on the wall. And, um, and not that long ago either, really. Yeah, you talk about how industries change fast. That changed real fast. Yeah. So I think it was that one. And what advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? Can be investment or otherwise. Learn from things like exactly what you're doing. Learn from things like this podcast. Um, it, something I feel really passionate about is there's no one way to invest. And every uh, aspiring investor needs to find, well, I think is best served finding what kind of investor they want to be. So whilst we do uh, you know, investing a certain way here, that is not for everyone. And so uh, my advice to someone starting out is just be as broad as possible. Question everything, especially the stuff that is taught in traditional institutions uh, and learn from the masters of the market and, and definitely go back to the greatest investors of all time. Go back to... Phil Fisher and Ben Graham and Warren Buffett and um, you know all of those, um, all of those investors that have proven themselves over many, many, many years. That's a pretty good place to start. Who are the ones now? Like if if I hear Stan Druckenmiller do any interview, it's almost a drop everything moment and just read that or watch that. For yeah. me, who are the ones now? Whenever they speak, for you still, where you're like, oh, I I really need to read that as as quickly as possible. Uh, I think we go through different phases also. I know personally I've gone through different phases and certainly the first half of my career was, and, and even as a teenager, was very much learning from as many business people and investors as I could and just sucking up all of that information. Now I don't, um, I wouldn't say I read anyone yeah. regularly or certainly not religiously. Uh, I'm more focused on implementing what we do here and focus on trying to be um, as good as we can be because I know what kind of investors we yeah. we are and optimising that outcome. And lastly, just to finish off, what are the most common mistakes you see retail investors make? I guess the, the thing that would come to mind is just this idea of patience and, um, and being willing to kind of ride the ups and downs. Like if you really want to generate, I, I believe, um, good, sustainable returns over the long term. It involves a lot of patience and um, going through the ups and downs of um, certainly of listed businesses. So when you find that business where you really feel like you understand the business and everything you read about the CEO and you know, go to the AGM and get to know them and you know, a lot of conference calls now are telecast, I really get a feel of people. When you find that business um, and that CEO management team that just resonates with you, that you really believe in, just stick with them um, and you know, understand kind of what your view of value is and just kind of ride the ups and downs. Hamish, it's been brilliant. I could sit here all day, but you've got things to do. But uh, thanks very much for taking the time and loved it. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Did as well. This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. Master of the market.